Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, John Downs, for his second Entangled appearance. In this episode, we discuss John's recent journey to the Galapagos and the sacred ceremony he held there. We discuss the interaction of sound and psychedelic plant medicines, as well as the importance of using ceremony to bring meaning into life. John discusses the practice of remembering our divine nature, that thou art that. We next discuss John's nonprofit, the Microdosing Collective, and how microdosing can help the physiology achieve an optimal state of flow. We next weigh the pros and cons of an initiation to psychedelics through microdosing versus macrodosing in a spiritual ceremony. From there, we discuss the injustices of the war on drugs and the dangers caused by drug prohibition. We next discuss working with plant medicine and ceremony and the importance of spiritual integration post-ceremony. John discusses his sound school and the idea of guiding sound through play and active listening. We then consider the nature of music. We end this episode discussing Joseph Campbell, comparative mythology, and the hero's journey. Outro is available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. So, John, welcome back to the Entangled Podcast, my friend. Thanks, brother. It's great to be back. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's probably been about a year since our last interview. A lot has changed. You've been working on a ton of projects like a crazy madman. So excited to hear about all the different things that you've been working on. You also just recently returned from a trip to the Galapagos. So let's maybe start with that. The Galapagos is a bucket list item for a lot of people. And after having spent two weeks there, my partner, my fiance, Nicole and I, we facilitated, hosted a retreat where we took 14 people down to experience ceremony and bring intention around uh, opening their hearts and minds in such a place that is a cradle of the birthplace of the theory of, of natural selection by evolution. Charles Darwin was there. That's the islands where he observed the finches all having different beaks and going at different food sources of food and being adapted for that. And yeah, we spent a week touring the islands, playing with the animals at one point, frolicking and swimming with a pod of, as I was saying earlier, 40 baby sea lions that were all hanging out off of a beach and really experiencing the intimacy with animals that we normally don't see in the places that we grow up. It's just, you know, animals are kind of off at a distance or they'll, they'll flee or they'll stay away. But here are the sea lions, the turtles, the, the birds, you know, the, the ocean birds, they're just, they're right there with you. And they're just not afraid. Even th in the water, the sharks, the fish, schools of fish, just being able to swim down right into the, in the middle of, and feeling like a fish in a school, the whole nine, it was really just a beautiful place and completely unspoiled. 97% of the islands is a natural, a national park. So they, they limit the number of visitors that can come each year. And it's really, they do a good job. They do a good job of, of keeping the park pristine, no pollution, no trash, just super clean, amazing water. And so it was really a beautiful place for us to integrate 
the ceremony that we that we did on Good Friday down there, and to then be with fourteen amazing people who hearts were wide open, and to be experiencing the universe, experiencing itself through those animals and through through the nature around us was just a really beautiful journey. Beautiful. Yeah. And what was the ceremony like? What was the experience? Yeah, the ceremony. So we facilitate with sound. And so overtone emitting instruments are the primary driver of the experience. When appropriate, we also work with, with medicines. Psilocybin is an amplifier to sound. And so the experience is one where we are using the sound to enable people to go deeper into their own psyche in a guided safe, ritualistic way, bringing intention and proper amount of preparation, as well as, of course, holding space for integration afterwards, can really be very transformative and positive for folks to sit in a ceremony and to work with psychedelics. And what I believe, and I think we've talked about before, their highest and best use, which is personal growth and spiritual growth and and self-development. Absolutely. What do you think it is about the psychedelic experience that is so connected to sound? Yeah. Well, if Nikola Tesla says, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, study energy, frequency, and vibration. And I believe as is spoken about in certain traditions, you know, in the beginning, there was the word, the word of God and alluding to sound and this pri- there is a primordial sound throughout the universe. And I think that that frequency had something to do with the formation of life and ulti- or I should say physical matter and then ultimately life and, and to where we are now with, with, and so the energy of the medicine psilocybin combined with the sound serves as an amplifier and also as a, a quieting, it, it quiets the mind. The medicine can quiet the mind. And we know that in the psychedelic experience, we slow activity in the default mode network in the prefrontal cortex. So as the prefrontal cortex goes offline or certainly slows down, the habitual executive thought processes that rule most of our life, 90 to 95% of our thoughts are just these natural habitual thoughts being generated from the unconscious or subconscious minds. And in the prefrontal cortex, it's, it takes the form of thinking about self-referential processing. Who am I? Why, why, what am I doing here? I'm smart. I'm creative. I'm not good at math, whatever it is. And if you can take someone into a meditation, forget about the medicine for just a moment, but if you just understand and study the minds of meditators, the ability to focus your mind on a single point of focus can be enormously beneficial for, for, for the, the, the mind and for the meditator. And so when you the way that we combine the sound with the amplification through the medicine, it's just a more reliable way to take people into a deeper meditation, having quieted the mind so that they can experience what all meditators are striving for, which is just this absence of judgment and story around the stimulus, whether it be your breath or just the sounds around you, just being completely present in this space before story, before judgment. And the, the 
way that we structure the ceremony with sound and with with the the medicine is really impactful at taking people reliably to that place. And in that place, we allow our unconscious mind to bubble up thoughts that we can then explore and explore in a way that we can, as has been said, you know, feel sadness without, you know, being sad or, you know, feeling a, 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 a memory and a felt sense of moving through and processing without necessarily bringing our logical cognitive mind to it, but rather just having a felt sense in older, wiser parts of our awareness that we can harness this tremendous amount of energy for transformation. And if you do anything in your life that you bring ritual to, and you really make any particular aspect of your life a ceremony, you're going to be better off because you're giving your life meaning. I'll give you an example just to go off on a tangent. But when I sit down to eat, especially at our at, at the dinner table, when we eat our dinner, it we're gonna say grace. You know, and I'm not saying grace to to any particular God or per se, or it's just to the spirit, to the energy. You know, we can call it whatever symbol we want. We can call it God. We can call it spirit. We can call it great mystery. But I make it a ritualistic habit to say thank you for this meal and to thank the hands that that prepared it and the animals that gave their life force energy and that's a way that i ritualistically introduce a habit of and a practice of gratitude into into my life and each little step each little action that we take we can bring that level of awareness and that level of ceremony and in doing so we give our life meaning and if you do not give your life meaning, it has no meaning. You decide. And that's the beauty of this choose your own adventure life that we all have the opportunity to live. And what I find in the coaching that I do is so often I work with folks that they're not choosing their own adventure. They're reacting to the energy around them. And then we end up feeling like, you know, we're, we're going back and forth in the breeze. And there's nothing to really cling to and hold to. And so one of the first steps that we always take in the coaching that I do is like, let's find our purpose. What is our North Star? What is guiding us? In the On the equator, when we were in Galapagos, it was for the first time being able to see at the same time, the North Star and the Southern Cross, which is what sailors would use to guide across these transatlantic you know, voyages and across the Pacific as well. And so, you know, understanding, okay, this is the, this is the, this is the North Star. This is the Southern Cross. This is how we're going to guide and, and move these ships across the sea and in a certain particular direction. Now we're not lost. And we're not just floating around and allowing the ocean currents to, to take us around. So we can do that in our own life, but we do that by bringing intention to each action. Yep. It's interesting because it's like one of the things that I struggled with when I started, you know, consciously down the spiritual path was how do you detach from the negative emotions and, you know, but still feel the positive emotions. And I, I think I've come, uh, I think, I mean, my, I, I, I view that whole paradigm completely differently now, but outside of that, I'm just curious, do you, do you find that other people have that same difficulty? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's very common. And just the language that you used right there, I want to draw attention to detach from the negative emotions. So what we, we want to do is reframe 
the negative emotions. We, we don't want to detach at all. In a certain sense, we want to feel them completely and thoroughly and allow them to move through our body because only, only when we do so can we desensitize ourselves to the energy of those, of those emotions. You know, we become initially more sensitive, more aware, more triggered perhaps, but then you know, just like in, in any other therapy where there's been a traumatic, let's say I'm scared of spiders, you know, a reliable form of, of cognitive behavioral therapy is to, is gradual exposure to the stress that provides the, the impetus for trauma. So you would be like, okay, I'm scared of spiders. Well, they're across the room, 10 feet away as a spider, you know, that the therapist might introduce. And then maybe it's the next day, the next session is five feet away. And we're able to sit with that. You don't, you can't turn away from that fear. You can't turn away from that emotion. You have to actually embrace it. And then gradually you can desensitize to it where maybe even, you know, like you can allow a spider to crawl on your hand and you've, you've cured yourself of your phobia. So, you know, we can do that in a lot of different practices, all of the practices, whether it's cold exposure therapy, whether it's whatever it is, it's all comes down to feeling the feelings. And then what we find is when we sit with those feelings and we allow them to, to be processed through parts of ourselves that aren't necessarily cognitive, but are more in our body, then, then we can really alchemize those into tremendous energy for growth and for transformation. But it always comes back to feeling, even when microdosing, I sometimes will say that the, the feeling that you're, gonna, that you're going for, the side effect of, a, let's say, psilocybin microdoses, the side effect is that you're just going to feel feelings just like the desired effect. You just might feel feelings that you necessarily didn't want to feel that day. But if you sit with them and allow them to work with you, then those will actually be your most impactful, positive days of growth and transformation in, let's say, an eight-week microdosing protocol. It's easy to take a microdose and go to the dog park and have amazing feelings of being connected to your dog and the trees and the sun, you know, and that's great. And I'm not saying that there's not a space for that, but when you're in the office and you're working through like, oh, there's these deadlines and I'm feeling anxiety and I feel a little bit more present. And it's like, well, what is, what is in your life, you know, needs to, do you need to bring more awareness to more consistently so that you're able to work with this energy and the trick if there is a trick to working with medicines is oftentimes just not to turn away from that, which is difficult. And the statistics bear this out. I mean, John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins has shown in studies that difficult journeys are statistically years, months, years later, the most impactful for those that have endured and gone through the, the difficult journey. They come out and they're like, wow, okay, I did it. I made it. I accomplished something. And yeah. this will, this is the lesson that will be with me for years down the line. Yep. I, I think that's such a profound thought. And also it gets to like the nature of what is health and what is the human body, the human being, right? Because I think part of what, you know, people who haven't worked with psychedelics, right, or are more skeptical of it are like, well, how could it be this panacea, right? That it can clear all these diseases, right? PTSD, anxiety, depression. But then you also hear people who like come out, out of experiences with, with cancer gone, right? Things that just completely baffle our minds of, of traditional Western science. But when you go back to that concept you're talking about earlier, where everything is energy, 
and that we were foolish to think that the, that emotional baggage, that that spiritual stress doesn't impact our body negatively, just the same as any physical or you know other chemical stressors would too. And so that it's all just about getting that getting that energy to flow freely, so you can return to your natural state of homeostasis. Yeah, absolutely. And anyone that hasn't read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, highly recommend. You store trauma. We all store traumas in our body. And it doesn't have to be a big T trauma. It can be a little T trauma. It can be complex PTSD of just little paper cuts, so to speak. It doesn't have to be you know, a large formative event per se for it to be stored in our body. And oftentimes in this work, I see people come to the work looking to learn something new, to stack on a new practice or protocol, some new bit of knowledge. And hey, that's the way that we've, in our society, it feels like someone's always trying to sell us something. So we're always just conditioned to buy like, okay, I'm coming to this psychedelic experience. Like, what am I going to learn? And in fact, more often than not, it's, it's just a, it's just a remembering it's forgetting all of the stuff that's been piled on and just, just allowing yourself to go back down to the level of felt sense feelings. It's not about cognitive reframing all the time, as much as it's just about feeling the energy that is present and remembering your own perfect nature, you know, your own perfect nature. And, and what I believe is that we are an expression of the divine experiencing itself. I have a much more Eastern perspective than a Western perspective. You know, in the Western perspective of spirituality, there's God, there's the religion, the church, and then there's us, right? And then when you look at the Eastern, more Eastern, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu, it's like, no. Thou art that, you know, Satvam Ali, I am the divine. The divine is in me. And, and the job of the divine, in, in as much as it is to be experienced in the world, is to forget that it's divine and to forget it. And so that's why we are walking around not realizing that we are divine and that we are God is because the whole purpose of the divine is just to experience itself because that's interesting and that's exciting. And so if we can remember that and remember our own divine nature, that's a felt sense that even if someone has not experienced that remembrance, it could sound like a little bit of woo-woo stuff. But if you felt it and reliably we could feel it in a mystical sense in a psychedelic ceremony, not reliably every single time, but it's quite frequently we do. That's why people come out and it's like, oh, it was ineffable. I I get it. You know, I get it now. I am love. And it's like, all right, for someone who hasn't experienced, it's like, sure, buddy, you're love. But when you feel, <laughs> but when you feel that truly in your in your core of your being, it changes things. Yeah. I agree. And that's why I am so brazenly pro psychedelics, right? I think we need to talk about them. We need to normalize them. We need to remove the stigma. You know, it, it and I, I'm not the guy that's being like Tim Leary, like let's poison the water with LSD, right? And everyone, it's not at all, right? But my point is that for people who are willing to experience them for themselves, they should have access to it. And for people who are inclined to work with them, they should have open access to it as well, because 
what these are doing are facilitating very profound, very important experiences. And I, I, I don't want to also encourage people to think that that's, you know, the, the ends, right? Psychedelics are the ends by any means, right? They're, they're a very effective tool to be used in a toolkit along with breath work and meditation and that kind of thing, right? And, and, and reading these spiritual texts and, and discovering for yourself, you know, what do you think about the nature of reality, right? All that is absolutely true. But at the end of the day, like, there's a Huxley quote that's something to the extent of, you know, we shouldn't have to burn down or to, to say we must use the most difficult way to facilitate a spiritual experience, right? That you have to go to a meditation retreat for, you know, five days and fast and, you know, whatever it is to have this type of experience, right? That would be like saying we have to burn down the pig house every time you want roast pork, right? It's just, it's crazy. And I, I, I think that we need to help bridge the gap between the psychedelics in the spiritual communities more broadly and say, how do we use these safely, responsibly, but effectively as a tool for helping people to recognize that divine nature that is within them all? Oh, brother, that's my purpose is to help people do that, to create a culture that's able to receive these powerful medicines and to do so wisely with mitigation of harm and increasing the opportunity and the chance of a positive outcome. I think one of the ways to approach psychedelics, especially as a beginner, is through the practice of microdosing. And I am the executive director of a 5013C nonprofit, the Microdosing Collective, and you can find us online at microdosingcollective.org. And our purpose is to bring what is the minimum effective dose of psychedelic medicines into the world in a way that's safe and allows for access for people to access. You know, I, I don't want to say harm reduction is a big thing because I feel like there's it's there's not a ton of harm in approaching microdosing from a spiritual or self, personal self-development perspective. When you are microdosing, you are taking a sub-intoxicating, really almost a sub-perceptual, a barely perceptible amount of one of these compounds, primarily psilocybin or LSD, and also Many people will microdose Wachuma with a mescaline and, and any of these compounds, but just take psilocybin, for example, what does it, what does it feel like to microdose psilocybin? It feels like you're slightly more grounded, more focused, more present, a little less chaotic in the mind and a little bit more, well, just present in your day. That's a powerful feeling when you start to stack many of those days together Along with, as you said, exploration of, of spiritual texts, meditation, having a mindfulness practice and a meditation practice or some type of yoga, if it's not just a sitting in silent meditation or Vipassana or transcendental, any of these practices are so important. But you know what? So is getting a good night's rest. So is drinking enough water and eating enough food. So I think we've talked last time I was on the podcast a little bit about flow and the, and the work that we've done around understanding these optimal states of neurobiology flow states and we can we can reliably access a flow state if we're doing those positive psychology basics and we have purpose 
and we're setting aside time to minimize distraction. And that's the best way to enter flow is with no supplementation, no psychedelic supplementation. But we also can enter flow reliably more con- more often with working with psychedelics, even in a non-ceremonial context or a non-therapeutic amount, a microdose or even a mini dose, which would be a little bit more than a microdose where it is more perceptual. You might not want to get behind the wheel of a vehicle. You know, you might want to have the time blocked out on an afternoon by yourself, but you're still not so deep in the medicine that you're tripping. You're just feeling the energy that that is being summoned within you by supplementation with the medicine. And then you're still able to bring cognitive, your cognitive faculties to bear to determine like, okay, what is this? What is this energy? What is this medicine trying to show me and teach me? And I think there's a huge missed opportunity around mini dosing and micro dosing that society needs to continuously talk about. And you know what? It's happening when just a couple of years ago, when I really started to, to realize like how impactful microdosing was for me and, and work more openly with clients that were seeking guidance and advice on, on how to work with these medicines. It, it didn't seem nearly as mainstream as now where, I mean, we're going to do host a webinar next week for the microdosing collective and Tracy T is one of our speakers and she's the founder of moms on mushrooms. And she's got a community of almost 600 mothers that are microdosing with the purpose oftentimes of just becoming a better parent and being more present in their life, you know, and, and yes, veterans are, are microdosing to integrate ceremonies. And yes, we know about the tech CEOs and executives from Silicon Valley that popularized the practice, but more and more, it's just normal everyday people of all walks of life, all income levels, the the most successful people that you could ever meet and those that are just trying to figure it out and 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 they're finding benefit from these practices and so what kind of a society are we to take the minimum effective dose something that is sub intoxicating that no one's ever overdosed or had you know an adverse experience in microdosing, in fact, the most common adverse experience is I didn't feel anything, you know, and and it's like, w- why are we as a society? What kind of what lack of compassion do we have, and empathy do we have when we've said no, you cannot do this? Especially when so much research now exists showing that that these medicines are impactful, that these natural medicines are impactful, and we know on the historical record that there was no real good reason that they were banned in the first place, no scientific and medical reason. It was just merely propaganda and it with no grounding in, in science. So I think the tide is shifting and I think it's important that we don't just revert to the, we do need to be careful not to allow a Timothy Leary type voice to enter the, the conversation and to really cause us to take steps back like we did in the early 70s with the initiation of the war on drugs. But I'm with you, brother. I mean, these are really, really impactful uh, medicines, especially when someone is willing to submit to doing the work themselves and saying, hey, I'm going to approach this mindfully in, yeah. in a ceremonial context. Totally. So, you know, as you talk about a ceremonial setting with psychedelics versus microdosing, for folks who have never worked with it in either setting, could you talk about 
what are some broad strokes, the differences in those experiences and, and maybe when one would be more inclined to just go all in on the full in spiritual experience versus maybe want to start with microdosing first? It's a good question that I get a lot. People ask me, well, should I microdose or should I macrodose? Should I sit in a ceremony? It depends. It depends on the individual and the context of their own life, their own mental health history, their physical history, spiritually where they're at on their path. What types of practices do they have access to or have they cultivated? Are they meditating? Are they relatively healthy or fit? All of these, excuse me, all of these factors come into play when making a recommendation. Ultimately, I, I have never made that recommendation for somebody else. I've never said you should do this, but I say you should trust your intuition. And if you are nervous about going into a, a plant medicine ceremony or a natural medicine ceremony and losing control is a, is a big concern, you have a lot of fear like I did when I first came to these medicines. It was a while before I microdosed for a while before I sat in my first ceremony simply because I was scared. I thought I would go crazy. I thought I would hurt myself or someone around me. I, I just had this perception that I would, you know, this is my brain on drugs. My brain would start frying. And it was, so for me, the right decision was to just, Hey, I'm going to microdose. I'm going to feel the energy of this medicine in a way that's subtle, but perceptual. And I'm going to become more comfortable with this dance. And then ultimately you get to a point where you say, okay, I'm ready to, I want to jump into the pool. I don't want to just dip my toe in. I really want to experience more of this energy and because I've, because people might feel more comfortable, they've been around more people that have sat in ceremony or a, a certain facilitator or guide, and they have more confidence in the experience, then they can approach a larger dose, a ceremonial or therapeutic dose with a proper mindset. And when someone has a, you know, a, a real medical solution, a real medical issue that they're trying to address, complex PTSD, debilitating anxiety, depression, they're on SSRIs. Oftentimes, what I find is even without making any uh, changes to their, to their prescription use, you can start to feel into a microdosing protocol supplementing their SSRI use with say psilocybin to feel if that could be a potential direction that they want to go down if they want to stop the SSRI use, right? So that's, you know, one thing to be in consideration. And then you also have people that are in that environment and they're at the end of the rope. You know, they're, they're really just like, I need an intervention. I need, and, and in that case, you know, with the proper screening, you know, you want to honor that, that if someone is ready to step through the threshold that they're at the end of the rope, they feel like they've done all of the conventional treatments that, that they would have access to now. And here's this potential therapy, this therapy that has promise to really redefine their relationship with self and soul and mind and put them on stronger footing for bringing, you know, for, for participating joyfully in the sorrows of the world, you know, and be, and living their best life in that instance, then, you know, the answer would be like, okay, let's, let's go through the proper set setting of intentions. Let's, you know, do the proper screening, right? Make sure that any medical history medications wouldn't interfere. Let's set the proper setting of the environment where we're going to take, take this activity, 
This activity is going to take place of sitting in ceremony. Let's have the proper guidance and facilitation. And then let's make sure that you're held afterwards through proper integration. And, and that could be a completely viable and, and the best pathway to go down. Another option, you know, the kind of the third path would be to sit in ceremony and then integrate that ceremony with the help of microdosing, which is actually quite common. It's really nice, you know, to have a subtle return to that energy after you've sat in ceremony, because now it's like you get it. You've been in the full, you've done the full Monty. And now as you're integrating that, it's nice to return on a consistent ritualistic basis to a steady protocol of microdosing. So then would you like microdose for a week after the ceremony or what's the typical protocol? Well, typically I would even wait a few days to a week after the ceremony before we initiated microdosing. And then, and then a typical protocol would be six to eight weeks, consistent microdosing, there are different protocols that one can choose. The Stamets protocol is the most common with psilocybin. That's four days on, three days off, and you repeat that for eight weeks. You could also do an every other day protocol where you just alternate day on, day off, day on, day off. And then another protocol, particularly with LSD, would be the Fatiman protocol. LSD, you develop a tolerance to very quickly. So if you were to take it consecutive days, you'd have to take more the second and third and fourth day in order to feel the same impact. And so it's just very difficult to always meter it out and measure it properly if you're developing a tolerance every every time you use it. So what people will do with LSD in particular is they'll do one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off. That's the Fatiman protocol. That way you get two days to reset your tolerance before you reinitiate with LSD. So there's different protocols and a protocol is just what medicine am I taking? How often am I taking it? How much am I taking it? And then for how long, right? So you answer those four questions and there's a lot of different ways to get there. But what's what's important is that you're consistent. There is a, a method of, of microdosing where you just go by intuition. Well, I microdose when I feel like it. And what I have found consistently in the lives of my clients in my own life is that when we dispense with the intuition and we say, we're going to stick with a, a regiment, it becomes more like making deposits in the bank. And after a while, they start to accumulate and the interest starts to compound and you get that tailwind type effect. Whereas if you're just periodically microdosing based on intuition, that's great to add a little like, oh, I need a creative boost today. I'm doing some writing or I'm going to go out in the park and I just want to feel more connected or whatever the case may be. That's That's fine. But when you really consistently day in and day out or through the course of eight weeks are consistent with your protocol, what happens is you end up putting yourself in situations where you're at your edge, where you would have to push yourself. So let's say it's Tuesday and I got to give a presentation to my boss and it's a microdose day. Do do I microdose that day or not? Well, you should. You should microdose that day because you want to commit to that difficult action of, let's say, this presentation with your boss when you're microdosing, because that's where you can really allow the medicine to help you expand past your current edge. That's what growth is. So the the practice of microdosing is one to bring t- to every aspect of our life, even the difficult, not just to self-select the easy days. Yeah, that's really interesting. So then when, when do you typically in your protocols recommend people take it? Because one concern I've had about, you know, if I were to take it before the work days, I don't like looking at screens when I'm on psychedelics. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's definitely an issue, a concern that if, if you just don't like looking at screens, but how much are you really feeling the psychedelics? Or if you're truly microdosing, it should be so minimal or sub-perceptual that you should, should not really necessarily even feel like you're on psychedelics per se. It's not a visual perceptive change. It's more of just a, you know, a felt sense of, of being more connected to your feelings. Again, psilocybin being more grounding, and and centering and an LSD being more uplifting and energizing, but still it's just a it's more of an energy in here than it is visual perception is is changed. Now, to answer your question, most of the time we advise doing it in the morning on an empty stomach, just when you begin your day, right after you've meditated or right before you're meditating, or I, I like to microdose right before I start doing my my creative, my morning pages. I do the the Julia Cameron's three three pages of freehand just free expression writing in my journal. And I like to have my coffee and I do my microdose and I start journaling and setting intentions and are just writing whatever's coming to mind. And that works for most people is to do it early in the morning. Some people, not so much with LSD because LSD could affect your sleep if you do it too late in the day, but psilocybin, some people will like to do it in the afternoons, especially mid-afternoon when you might be slumping. You know, you, The psilocybin can sometimes give us a nice creative boost or energetic boost. And then also, you know, I've seen many people that I've worked with that are trying to stop drinking and they're used to having a drink after work. But if they microdose in the afternoon, say three, four o'clock, when five o'clock, six o'clock rolls around, they're still feeling pretty good. And they can feel like they can turn that drink down. And it, it's really good for alcohol cessation and habit change. So I guess there's more than one way to do it. You don't have to always microdose in the mornings, but that's typically what most folks will do. Got it. And what is typically the recommended microdose dosage? Good question. With psilocybin, 100 milligrams to 200 milligrams is, is kind of the sweet spot. 150 milligrams is a really good number. And with LSD, it's typically 10 micrograms, which would be one-tenth of what's typically considered a full tab. A tab is 100 micrograms. So 10 micrograms is works for most people. And that's again, sub intoxicating, truly barely perceptible, if, if not sub perceptible, but still has some positive impact. There are some sensitive people that need to go down a little bit. And there's some people that feel like, Hey, I, I, you know, I need 20 micrograms of LSD in order to feel what I want to feel. It's always important when you begin a microdosing practice to start your first microdose on a Saturday or Sunday, when you don't have to drive, you don't have to go to the office you know, give yourself a couple days to feel into, am I somebody that is super sensitive or not sensitive? And just try to, you know, cite it in on the weekends before you just go right into work, microdosing your first day. The worst, the, the worst thing about, you know, microdosing for many people and is that, you know, they think they're taking a microdose and they accidentally take more than they thought. You see less of that now because there's much more of an understanding around many say fewer people are microdosing by just taking like raw mushrooms and, and putting them in their mouth. You know, it's like most people now have some access to capsules, can grind them up, can weigh it out and can, much more careful with the measurements. Right. Well, and that's something that I, you know, always really hammer home when we talk about the war on drugs and illicit drugs. It's the, it's the effects of prohibition that makes these drugs dangerous, right? It's, it's almost never the drugs themselves. It's the fact that you're involving now organized crime syndicates and they're getting cut all along the way and you can't trust the supply line, right? It's not, or the, you know, you don't know what the dosage is because you 
can't get in you can't get a consistent quality product right so again just one of the frustrations with these these substances still being schedule one we got to change that and i know there's there's folks working at a federal level and then there's of course folks that are working at the state level colorado having passed the natural medicines act oregon also having recently legalized psychedelics we got to get involved voters can make a difference on this issue if we contact our lawmakers and our congressmen our senators and say this is something that needs to change it's really a bipartisan issue our our politics are so broken that nobody wants to do anything because they don't want the other side to get credit for it but you know there is a real impetus for rescheduling psilocybin in particular it you know has breakthrough status with the fda and you know the biden administration has said that in the next few years they're looking at rescheduling now you know we're still sitting here with cannabis federally illegal and i don't really hold a lot of faith in what any elected official says on either side of the aisle but we we have to just we have to take our chances by making the phone calls and yeah the the scariest part about these medicines this these drugs is getting caught <laughs> you know that that's what can really mess you up it's not anything that if they're used mindfully I think the the risks are drastically overstated. Not to say again that they're not panaceas and they don't have to be approached responsibly, and that we don't want to keep them out of the hand. Of course, we want to keep them out of the hands of, of children and, and and the unaware. You know, even I talk to a lot of 40, 50, 60 year old people, and their experience with psychedelics is yeah, once in high school, you know, I tripped acid in a basement and. It was terrible. And I said, I'd never touch it again because I was sitting there with my boyfriend who was two years older than me. And it's like, we just stared at the basement wall and it was really hard, (laughs) you know? And, and now they're, you know, coming back to microdosing, coming back to, you know, they've seen how to change your mind on Netflix and they're, they're open and they're, they they realize that the SSRIs or what have you is not working. And that really a lot of our culture, a lot of our way, our society is just not working. And so now they're, they're entertaining this coming back to this and we have to just guard against the naive being in situations where they're taking something on a whim, on a dare, or even without their knowledge. And then it soils their relationship with what can be a very impactful, positive medicine if taken mindfully. Yep, totally. And I think that's also why part of the propaganda of the war on drugs has been so effective because, you know, if you go into the psychedelic experience expecting it's going to be bad, it's good. You're going to have a bad time and you're not going to like know what you're doing. You talked about having the spiritual ceremony versus the microdosing as being the best on way, you know, on ramp options. Yet I think most people probably have had what you just referred to, right? Where they're with friends, they take too much, they don't know what's going on, they're out at a big concert or whatever, and, and it's not a good experience. Yeah, and I, one of this brings up one of the things I'm really passionate about, which is creating culture around mindful use and facilitation of psychedelics. I personally don't believe that these drugs are dangerous enough nor it's not justified to lock them up in clinics and only allow people with $5,000 in their pocket or the, the right insurance plan to access it in a clinical environment with a therapist. Many of us are just not, I mean, so, for some people, yeah, that, that probably is, is the best, safest way. You know, when we have 
complex PTSD and, you know, very severe cases, mental, mental health issues. But for most of us, that I guess the healthy normals that, you know, we refer to, we are, should be able to access these medicines and people should be able to hold space for others in community. If you look at indigenous culture and how they've worked with these medicines, it's always in community. It's always an elder that is holding the space and the integration in an indigenous community is just like going, you're just in the village, you know, integration is life. But then we, you know, the integration in our, our world is much more hit or miss because we don't have the same level of and the fabric and closeness of community. And so people feel really alone and isolated in contrast to that connection that they feel in the ceremony space. And so I, I'm in the process right now as someone who for the last couple of years has facilitated or co-facilitated along with my partner, Nicole, dozens and dozens of ceremonies we have a, with sound, right? Where we're playing instruments in a non-linear fashion. I'm playing the gong, I'm playing the sound bowls, I'm playing the monolina, I'm playing the wing and all these different really fun instruments. And I'm just playing. I'm not a trained musician. I, I, I can't even read music and never played the guitar. I can't play the piano. You know, tried white, right? You know, as a kid to learn the guitar, I was like, this is too hard for me. I can't do this. But when you get me behind all these different instruments that are tuned to the pentatonic scale that they just sound good almost no matter what note you hit, that's kind of my dirty secret is it's like, I'm not such a great musician. It's just like, if you just engage in play and you're able to suspend the judging voice, then you can really make beautiful sounds and you can guide people with sound along with just the basic training of just like understanding the right way to hold space and to set a proper setting and active listening. And I mean, the training on the Zendo, if you've ever done the Zendo project, which is maps started this harm reduction where at festivals, they would have a tent and call the Zendo tent. And if somebody was having a difficult journey, had taken some, some drugs at, at, at the concert and needed help, you could go into the tent, you could chill you would have people there to hold space. And I'm, I mean, the training manuals are not that complicated. It's just, you know, really being supportive, letting people know it's like, you're on a journey, it's going to end, you know, this is, it, you know, the drugs are working and they're going to stop working and just, and just kind of holding that space. And what I'm really passionate about is giving everyone the basic tools to be able to ha reduce harm for someone who's, who's journeying. And then with the sound, holding space with sound, so I, I'm really excited and passionate to to launch what what I'm calling Sound School, which is a school to train people to be facilitators with these instruments. Because in my experience, I now have I'm a, it's almost like a, a I don't want to say a pyramid scheme, but you know like one of those Amway things where someone buys something from me and then they just like want to do it themselves. You know, so like we have I have a, a half dozen facilitators that are facilitating that their first exposure to this was sitting in a ceremony with, with Nicole and I, and then they come out of the ceremony and they're like, Holy shit. Like I want to do this. I want to play these instruments. And just the play of the instruments becomes a spiritual practice in and of itself, because you're getting out of the, the mindset of, I need to perform. I, I'm, I need to be a good musician. And, and you're just like, just releasing the energy of, of playing with the instruments. And then that is such a, a beautiful way to hold space. If you're on a psychedelic, journey and and these sounds are happening in a non-linear fashion it's not a rhythmic song that's happening it's just these non-linear sounds and so you can't really you don't get into a thought loop you don't get into these 
you, you I, we rarely see this, you know, where someone has a difficult journey because they're just being moved through this, this journey, this process of start to finish with all the different instruments played in a coordinated fashion, but in a nonlinear fashion. So I believe that if we, we need to train an army of facilitators and, and we need to actively talk about a safe culture of mindful use for personal and spiritual development, because this is the highest and best use for these drugs. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's interesting what you're saying about nonlinear aspect of the music is, is powerful. Like, so is it, do you think that it, the nonlinearity of it helps you to kind of get to that breakthrough state of consciousness? Yeah. So the, yes, because what happens is if you're playing in a rhythmic fashion, you can just like get caught in a song and you're just listening to the beat of the song and, and you're not going deeper into your own psyche. But when you are playing in a nonlinear fashion and your mind is constantly having to be open to like what the sound is next, what sound is next. At a certain point, you just get drop, you just drop into that meditation of there's no other thought except following the sound. And we say this in our ceremonies, follow the sound and you can follow the sound if it's a rhythmic song, but then, it, then your mind immediately, like within moments has it down and it's like, okay, I get the beat, you know, it's like, bah, 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 bah. whereas when you're playing in a nonlinear fashion and you're following the sound, you're constantly being asked to reassess attention and to refocus attention in a singular place, which is the heart of meditation to just listen. There is no bad sound, listen to the sound. And then all the other thoughts, the judgments, everything out, the thinking mind kind of melts away. And then you're able to go deeper into levels of your psyche that real therapeutic breakthroughs can take place. Wow. Very cool. And so as you get sound school together, what is the program going to look like? Well, it's going to look like workshops and trainings, just like the ones that I've attended where you go somewhere for eight or 10 days and you're in a big house and you're with 30 other people that are learning to facilitate and learning from masters of their craft, how to facilitate not only for harm reduction and safety to hold space, to be able to, to guide someone with no, no instruments and no sound, but then also to, to learn how to play the instruments. And then that, that will be combined with online training where we'll have guest instructors and teachers come in, be able to do workshops and classes on particular instruments or particular methodologies of guiding. There's a lot of different ways to even do a simple sound ceremony. I have a friend who's an amazing facilitator and he leads more with his voice and will actually have people singing and vocalizing in a ceremony, which is, oh man, you talk about a spiritual practice, you know, to be working with some, some of these medicines and then being asked to put your voice into the space. Oh, that can bring up a lot of nerves, a lot of unease about because we hold a lot in our voice you know and, and many of us you know we find that we get stuck and we we, we don't in our day-to-day -day waking lives we feel like we're, we're holding something back so being in a therapeutic uh psychedelic space where you can then put your voice into the space can be quite impactful so all of this is a long way of saying that there's a lot of different ways to explore sound and voice and play and expression and we're going to have all kinds of, of different workshops and retreats and classes that are going to explore all of those really fun areas. Hmm. That's really cool. What do you think about like 
What is the nature of music? What is the nature of music? Well, it seems like it's primordial, right? I mean, the beating the drum, you know, having a rhythm, the frequency, there's something about sound in, in general that just like we can feel it in our, in our bones and it's very cathartic. And I, I, I mean, there's some great quotes that of course are escaping me, but you know, it's just like when you, you know, music is, it's, it's, it's a really powerful medicine. It's all I can say is it's a very powerful medicine and not only expressing oneself through playing music. And I, and I say expressing very carefully, not performing, you know, but really just playing with the creation of sound is a very powerful practice. And in all spiritual disciplines, in all religions, in all cultures around the world, music and sound is a part of accessing the divine whether it's the tribal drums in new guinea or it's the gospel choir in new orleans whatever it is you know sound and and vocalization is a is a big part of spirit and i think i think there's a lot to be explored there yeah yeah i think you're you're right and i'm really excited about the future of sound technology, right? And I think definitely from like the spiritual metaphysical sense, right? Like we're talking about and facilitating these transcendental experiences. But I also think that from a very technical standpoint too, we're going to learn incredible things about how to manipulate sound and frequency for healing and for re-understanding our known physics of the universe. So um, I think there's a lot more to, to be learned in the future. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I just saw something the other day of the sound of a black hole. You know, and I'm I'm big on this idea. I mean, that the original, you know, impetus, the catalyst for formation of any matter in the universe is sound. That frequency permeating through the universe has formed gases to coalesce and then gravity. You know, that means gravity and radiation, right? Gravity pulls everything together. Radiation, you know, is going out, but then sound, you know, is a manipulation of, of that. And, and so hey, I don't have the scientific mind. I, you know, I haven't done enough deep reading, but just there, there's something for me, like I said, to the spiritual aspect of, of sound. And it goes back to, you know, in the beginning, there was the word, you know, there was, there was a sound of, of spirit. So you were talking about the Microdose Collective earlier. Could you talk a bit more about what what the mission is of the collective and where things stand today? I'm stoked to say that our mission is to legalize microdosing. And we're going to launch a campaign to legalize microdosing in the very near future. We're currently going through a rebrand. If anyone goes to our website, microdosingcollective.org, you're going to see a really cool website that says our manifesto talks a little bit about who we are and the pillars of what what's important to us. Ultimately, we're here to create community. We're here to educate and we're here to change laws. And so those are the three pillars that we're standing on is, is changing laws, educate and build community. So we're launching a webinar series beginning next Thursday, April 4th at 11 a.m. Pacific. There's going to be a how-to mastering microdosing. We're going to have Tracy T from Moms on Mushrooms, as well as Laura Dawn, who's the host of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. 
and Ali Shaper, an entrepreneur who's a founder of Supermush and Into the Multiverse, Paul Austin, the founder of Third Wave, great educational website on psychedelics, and, uh, and Josh Kappel, who's another one of our founders and uh, board members, and he's one of the partners at Vicente and really influential in drafting the Natural Medicines Act in Colorado. And so we're going to get on that webinar. We're going to talk a little bit about best practices and tips and tricks for success to begin a microdosing practice. And then we're going to talk a little bit about our mission and vision on how we can get involved in community in order to educate those around us, as well as to change the laws for all of us. So pretty excited about what we're doing there. Coming up at the Psychedelic Psychedelic Science Conference in June in Denver, which MAPS is organizing. We're going to have a couple of big events. We're going to do one awesome. in particular. I'm planning to come by. I'll, I'll see you there. Oh, yeah. You're going you're gonna to get the invite. So Wednesday night, we'll have a big a big party and should, you know, three, 400 person party. And so just really excited. We'll have a booth there as well. And really excited to just continue to build momentum and raise awareness for our mission to legalize microdosing. And yeah, that's that's the that's the next big thing. I actually just bought that website domain, legalizemicrodosing.com for the for the the nonprofit. And we're gonna run a big campaign through it. I, I envision all over the interstate f- freeways. I'm trying to find a big donor that wants to like put some domain uh, some web, excuse me, some billboards up, legalizemicrodosing.com, and then just drive awareness around the benefits of the minimum effective dose of psychedelic medicines. Just the minimum effective dose is the safest, best way for someone to dip their toe in the water and start to develop a relationship that can be quite impactful and positive in their lives. Wow. That's great. And you know, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is we were talking about before the the conversation started about Joseph Campbell and how you've been really enjoying his work. So would love to hear what attracted you to him. Yeah. Yeah. So I read Hero with a Thousand Faces uh, about a year ago, and I've always been taking a step back. I guess I've always like had a spiritual mindset. I've always kind of been seeking to understand my place in the universe. Going back even to Sunday school in my grandma's Methodist church, I can remember being in Sunday school and and asking questions, you know, wanting to ask questions and really understand this, the scripture. And then being in high school and I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, it was the buckle of the Bible belt and didn't have a lot of exposure to any ideas outside of Christianity. I mean, that was the cave that I grew up in. It was just, that's that, you know, if you were, you were a heathen outside of, of being a Christian and, and yet there were certain things about Christianity that I just didn't make sense to me. Like, why are all these people really go? Why are they going to hell just because they've never heard of Jesus or they lived before Jesus? Like certain elements that just always gnawed at me and had questions about the scriptures. And then I became exposed more to, to Buddhist philosophy and, you know, then gained exposure as I got older into my twenties to Hindu philosophy. And so there was this loose sense that there were these other paths to spirituality that were available to me, but I'd never really put my mind around intense, serious study and really trying to get to the bottom of 
why are all these paths exist and which is the right path and is there a right path and who really believes what and what Joseph Campbell did for me as a comparative mythologist, he's someone who a brilliant, brilliant thinker who studied all of the world's religions and not just their religions, but their myths, their mythologies, the stories, the fabric of what made particular cultures tick at certain particular times. And yes, in many instances, you know, the religious mythology was the paramount, most important mythology to shape a particular culture at a particular area in time. But also great stories, you know, going back to the very time immemorial, Gilgamesh and so on, and understanding what are the common themes of the essence of humanity and spirituality. What does Buddhism, what's, what's different about it with Hinduism versus Christianity versus Confucianism and versus works in popular culture, the grail myths and so on. And Joseph Campbell just like a G just went through and started, you know, just to me made so much sense as I started to understand and study and it, it illuminated all of these questions around these mysteries around life and around why we're here and what we really know and what we don't know. And what I ultimately learned that was so impactful is we oftentimes get stuck in the symbols, you know, words, any word that we're using is any categorization that we're trying to put on the world around us, the spirit around us, it's, it's kind of a lie because, you know, horse is not that creature. You know, it's, it's, it's a word that we use to describe. So we know what we're talking about it, but it's not that thing. It's not the essence. And so when you take, you know, you can do that with horse or, or any word, but then when you start to really apply it to like God or spirit or soul or consciousness, you realize how quickly words fall short. And we don't want to be like I was where, you know, I was just, you know, pointing at the moon. I was only seeing my finger and that's all I'd ever seen. I'd never really saw the moon. And in my experiences with natural medicines, I, I started to like grasp the moon and then I didn't have the, I didn't really have the, the way to relate to it and the transcendental, the mystical, the divine. And Joseph Campbell is someone who studied all of the world's traditions and found like the through line, the commonality between all of them, the essence of what it is to be human and to be on a spiritual path and made it make sense to me and really separated me from the moon versus my finger and allowed me to, to start to realize and, and to find peace at my place in the universe where I'm at. And within that, I mean, there's so many teachings you know that are used in story i mean that we use now in 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 our the the hero's journey right this idea that we're all on a hero's journey you know the the understanding of you know feminine mythology and and you know how the feminine represents you know in so many different cultures you know the chaos but then also the opportunity and then also you know life and is life giving and w- combined with the symbolism and archetypal and, and archetypal studies of Carl Jung and Jung, right, is ultimately a psychoanalyst. He ultimately took, you know, this, this body of knowledge started by Freud, but then, you know, he built upon it and then ultimately separated from it. And he started to Carl Jung, you know, really started to connect the religious to 
everything is from within. Like everything is generated from man, from our own uh, psychology. And so to study deeply our own psychology and to do that psychoanalysis, but then also to, to then have a direct link to religion and religious studies and comparative mythology and mythological studies, you realize just like they say in the gospel of Thomas, you know, the universe, all the universe is mental. It's all mind. You know, everything is mental. And I mean, I even have it like as within, so without, you know, tattooed on my arm. And you realize that, yes, it is all mental. Like every religious tradition was, was originated from man you know, from, from the, the mind of humanity. And we have this, there's just a real deep knowing that I find peace in as I dive deeper into the symbolism, deeper into the universal commonalities of truths of what it is to be human. And I could go, I could go on for days, you know, talking about Joseph Campbell's impact in just my own spiritual studies and I, I highly recommend anybody go to, there's a great podcast on Spotify called Pathways, Joseph Campbell's put out by the Joseph Campbell Foundation, where there's some of his old lectures from when he was lecturing back in the day. You can also find them at his website, jcf.org, and recommend, he's such an erudite and brilliant lecturer, so interesting that he's fascinating to, to listen to lecture in addition to reading his books and his yeah, I'll just I'll just leave it there. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I'll I'll include a link to that in the show notes and definitely check it out. It sounds super cool. And I think it's awesome what you pull out about, you know, how good he was at going through all this really dense, often abstract, you know, stories and, and pulling out the commonalities and themes. And, you know, when you hear modern day skeptics of, you know, like Yuval Harari and stuff like that. They always talk about, oh, well, you know, look at all the differences amongst these religions. And it's like, yeah, of course. But a lot of these were oral traditions. They were naturally tailored to the environment, to the situations. And also, I think the history of humankind on this planet is much more complicated and and ancient than our modern paradigm you know, posits. So it, it makes sense that there's a long story and, and a complicated story to tell. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I'm a I'm a certainly someone that's familiar with the works of Graham Hancock and you know, think it's really fascinating to look at the potential that we've got a lot longer on this planet as an advanced civilization than 10,000 years ago with, you know, the birth of agriculture in the in the Sumerian Valley or Mesop- Mesopotamian Valley and with the Sumerians. And so I, I absolutely think that for anyone that is trying to find their place in the universe that is on a spiritual path, it's it's relevant to dive deeper into the different traditions without getting lost in any particular tradition. As soon as you make your God concrete, you make your religion or your myth concrete, you've lost it. You've lost the thread because every religious tradition and myth points to something that we just can't know the answer to. And anyone that tells you that they have the answer or that they know is, is lying because you can't know you just, we just don't know how, how the fuck we got here. Sorry, pardon my French. You know, so, uh, so what we have to do is we have to, you know, by studying these traditions, we gain so much wisdom if we can also hold the uncertainty 
And, and, and then you realize, as Joseph Campbell says, like, what is the meaning of life? Life has no meaning except the meaning you bring to it. It's your choice. You are you know, the, the ultimate judge and jury of what matters. And, and it, it can be completely different for two people. And that's just the beauty of the expression of the divine coming through two different points of awareness. Yeah. Well, John, this has been awesome. Really appreciate you coming back on the show, man, and having this conversation. We mentioned the microdose, the microdose collective, and I think you dropped the website for that. Anywhere else people should look out for you? Go to my website, johnrobertdowns.com. Happy to, yeah, happy to to have anyone that's interested in talking with me further. You can contact me at the website. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again, man. This was such a fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I always enjoy talking with you, Jordan. I appreciate you. Keep up the good work. And thanks again for having me. Absolutely, man. Take care. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this conversation, John discussed Joseph Campbell and the contribution of his work to the field of comparative mythology. Who was Joseph Campbell, and what did his idea of the hero's journey represent? Here's a clip from the documentary about his life, Finding Joe. Who is Joseph Campbell and why should we care? A topic that comes up a lot. Joseph Campbell was one of the leading mythology experts of all time. Joseph Campbell is a, a philosopher. A man who, who had this ability to see the truth in a world where we've lost sight of that in many ways. He studied all of these classical myth traditions, and he actually started by studying Native American mythology. He fell in love with it when he was a kid. This was his bliss. And he wound up studying the Aboriginal cultures. He studied Greek mythology. He studied Arthurian legend. He dissected and, and really diagrammed all of our stories. He compared the philosophies, the mythic stories of the whole world. All myths, all movies, all novels, all romances. And he find this one story within all the stories that we can relate to no matter where you come from. He recognized that in spite of all the different stories we seem to be telling, there's really only one. And he called it the hero's journey. There must have been thousands and thousands of hero stories from every culture, but until Joseph Campbell came along, certainly I never realized how they all kind of fit together and how they were basically the same story. I was a religion major in college. I was taking my final exam, and I had a moment where I was just gobsmacked. It's just like, holy crap, it's all the same thing. I mean, it is really all the same. Thing. The hero's journey is a pattern. You can almost think of it as an algorithm that has three basic parts. Separation, initiation, and return. 
separation. You are in one kind of a reality, in one kind of a place, you are separated from it. Initiation. You're put into another place where you are in some manner initiated. Return. You come back. A simple version of the hero's journey is, you know, someone uh, starting out in their normal protected world and then getting a call to adventure. The call to adventure. There's a vision. There's a quest. It's the story of the hero enduring some trials. Various trials and ordeals. Meeting different obstacles along the way. People that hurt you, people that help you. Doors will open, as Campbell would say, for you where there are no doors for others. Dragons will appear that are your dragons alone. You get to like the innermost cave where you're really challenged, like the greatest crisis, and you find your true self. The achievement, the glory, but then that's not the end of it. That is to bring that back to the community. There's a return to tell the story. That is a heroic journey. Separation, initiation, return. All of the adventures of the human story are in there. All the heroes, all the villains, all the gods and goddesses, and all of the knights, and all of the fantastic creatures we can conjure up in animation, they're all in there, because they're all in here. Because they're all in here. This is where they come from. If you look at some of the greatest pieces of literature, the greatest works of philosophy, they all have what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. And if you look with a piercing eye, you can recognize his outline in just about any movie or story you would read. Star Wars, The Matrix, Harry Potter, Wizard of Oz. That's a classic story of a hero's journey. You first see Dorothy in her natural environment. And just like out here in regular life, a person is operating in their natural environment every day and living in their house and that kind of thing. And then something happens to shake that world up. And you go on a journey in which you have to face certain tests and challenges. How is it possible that every human life, every book of literature, every myth, how is it possible that they are all telling the same story? Could it be that all conscious thought, all expressions of creative intelligence emanate from the same cosmic source? That from this field of pure consciousness, we are living the message that all is unity? That the purpose of life is to recognize our divine nature and to experience the hero's journey right here, right now, in this collective construct we call Earth? One of the principles of chaos theory is that complex systems are self-similar at different scales. I believe this is exactly how our universe works. While our lives can feel isolated from the rest of reality, in fact, we are relatively independent subtotalities of one integrated whole. So our lived experience in a day, a year, or a lifetime reflects the same story operating on a cosmic scale over millions of years. This is the nature of the archetype. We are all living infinite experiences of the hero's journey on our path to self-discovery and self-actualization. And so if the purpose of life is to live the hero's journey, to answer that call to adventure, why are so many of us stuck in the world of the routine, the profane, and the distressed? That's where the matrix comes in. The Vedic tradition teaches that in our human experience, we must see through maya, past the illusion of duality, 
to, direct, to recognize the divine unity connecting all of us. That we are born into this reality, forgetting our divine nature, so that we can remember it. We are how the universe experiences itself. Yet too often we fall for Pragya Parad, the mistake of the intellect, and get trapped in the illusion of Maya. So how do we see through Maya and instead discover our own hero's journey? We follow our bliss. Here's Campbell describing this practice in a 1988 interview with Bill Moyers. You go to work and study an art. You study the techniques. You study all the rules. And the rules are put upon you by a teacher. Then there comes a time of using the rules, not being used by them. Do you understand what I'm, mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So also, one way is, is, to, is to follow, I always tell my students, follow your bliss. Follow, follow your bliss? Your bliss, where the deep sense of being in form and, and, and going where your body and the soul want to go. Uh, when you have that feeling, then stay with it and don't let anyone throw you off. Have you ever read uh, Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt? Not in a long time. Do you remember the last line? I've never done the thing I wanted to in all my life. Quite a That's the man who never followed his bliss. Well, I heard that line. I was living in Brownsville when I was teaching at Sarah Lawrence. Before I was married, I used to be eating out in the restaurants of the town for my lunch and dinners. And Thursday night was the maid's night off in Brownsville so that all the families were out in the restaurants. And one fine evening, I was in my favorite restaurant there, it was a Greek restaurant, and uh, at the table was sitting a father, a mother, and a scrawny little boy, about 12 years old. And the father says to the boy, drink your, your, drink your tomato juice. And the boy says, I don't want to. And uh, the father, with a louder voice, says, drink your tomato juice. And the mother says, don't make him do what he doesn't want to do. The father looks at her and he says, he can't go through life doing what he wants to do. <laughs> Said, if he does only what he wants to do, he'll be dead. Look at me. I've never done the thing I wanted to in all my life. I said, my God, Babbitt incarnate. Mm. And that's the man who never followed his bliss. Well, you may have a success in life, but then just think of it. What kind of life was it? What good is it? You've never done the thing you wanted to in all your life. What happens when you follow your bliss? You come to bliss. This should be it in marriage. I mean, that's the sense of the, of the marriage ceremony. In, uh, in the Middle Ages, a, f a favorite image that occurs in many, many contexts is the wheel of fortune. There's the hub of the wheel and there's the revolving rim of the wheel. And if you are attached to the rim of the wheel, that's say fortune, uh, that you will be either above, going down at the bottom, or coming up. But if you are at the hub, you're in the same place all the time. And that's the sense of the marriage uh, vow. You know, I take you in health or sickness, you know, in wealth or poverty, but I take you and you are my bliss, not the wealth that you might bring me, nor the social prestige, but you. And that's following your bliss. Now, I came to this idea of bliss because uh, in Sanskrit, uh, which is 
the great spiritual language of the world and they know all about it and have known about it for a long time uh, the transcendent is transcendent but there are three terms that bring you to the brink you might say the jumping off place to the ocean and the three terms are sat chit ananda and sat the word sat means being chit means full consciousness and ananda means rapture so I thought I don't know whether my consciousness is full consciousness or not I don't know whether my being is a proper being or not but I do know where my rapture is so let me hang out a rapture and that'll bring me both being and full consciousness and it worked what was your rapture well, it started with Indians, and then it went on into more and more mythological matters and the realm of the arts, music, and, uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the, when I met Jean, then the dance came in, and um, this, is, uh, this is it, to stay with that. And one doesn't have to be um, a poet to do this. Carpenters do it. A poet is simply one who's made a profession and a lifestyle of uh, being in touch with that. Most people have to be concerned with other things. Uh, they get themselves uh, involved in uh, economic and other uh, activities or you're drafted into a war that isn't the one you're interested in. And uh, how to, um, to hold to this... Um, umbilical you might say uh, in on those circumstances that's a technique each one has to work out for himself somehow but uh, most people living in that realm of uh, what might be called uh, occasional concerns uh, they all have the capacity that's waiting to be awakened to to move to this other place I know it I've seen it happen in students uh, wonderful way of teaching we had at Sarah Lawrence where I taught for 38 years uh, we'd ha I'd have an individual conference with every one of my students at least once a fortnight for half an hour or so and there you're talking on about the things that students ought to be reading and suddenly you hit on something that the student really responds to you can see the eyes open the complexion changes the life possibility has opened there and all you can say to uh, yourself is, I hope this child hangs on to that, you know. They may or may not. But when they do, they've found a life right there in the room with you. How would you advise somebody to tap that spring of eternal life, that joy that is right there? Well, we're having experiences all the time, which uh, uh, may, on occasion, render some sense of this, a little intuition of where your joy is. Grab it. No one can tell you what it's going to be. I mean, you've got to learn to recognize your own depths. Do you ever have this sense when you're following your bliss, as I have at moments, of being helped by hidden hands? All the time. It, it, it's miraculous. I even have a superstition that has grown on me as the result of invisible hands coming all the time. Namely, that if you do follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you. And, uh, and the life that you ought to be living is the one you're living somehow. And uh, when you can see it, uh, you, you begin to deal with people who are in the field of your 
bliss and they open doors to you I say follow your bliss and don't be afraid and doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be